I don't know how often we think of salvation as being lifted out of the grave. That seems like a big deal, doesn't it? God alone can save us from death. That's a big deal. It's all about Him. It's the theme of our morning, really the theme of our walk with Him. Um, On a completely different note, I don't know if anybody noticed that a new Star Wars trailer came out this week. How many of you saw the trailer for Rogue One this week? Okay. Maybe an easier way to ask that is, who didn't see the trailer for Rogue One? Okay. Really? That surprises me. Okay. Wow. I'm just saying, I thought you of all people. Okay. Um, Star Wars has this weird precedent of telling stories out of order. Right, a film that starts with episodes 4, 5, and 6. Then we get the prequels, 1, 2, and 3. Now we get 7, 8, and 9. And Rogue One happens somewhere in the middle of all of that. Um, But if you were with us a few years ago, you'll know we began a series through the book of Acts. Acts written by Luke, which tells the story of the continuation of the ministry of Jesus after his death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. Well, today we begin the prequel to Acts. The Gospel of Luke, also written by Luke, which tells the ministry of Jesus up through the death, resurrection of Jesus Christ and his ascension into heaven. That's how I worked a Star Wars thing into the sermon this morning. That's the best I could do. I couldn't show the trailer. I don't know if that's even legal, but I did my best. Anyway, I'm excited for us to spend some time talking about the life and ministry of Jesus because a lot of us are familiar with it and we've spent some time in that, but we talk about Jesus a lot. And for some of you, maybe you've never actually spent a lot of time walking through the life of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus. And so we're going to have an extended series through the gospel of Luke, and I'm actually really excited about that. Luke has an agenda in writing the Gospel of Luke, which he actually outlines right from the very beginning, from verse 1. He says, this is why I'm writing it. I'm writing this to give you an orderly account of the ministry of Jesus based on the people who were there and saw it. This is what they have told me. Luke acts very much like a reporter collecting all the data and all the information from the people who were there with Jesus and after Jesus who have heard about him and knew the people that were involved. In fact, he says it this way, his goal is to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us so that you may have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. We talk about Jesus a lot. We hear about Jesus a lot. We hear his name used a lot. And Luke says, let me assure you of what you have heard about him so that you can know it's true. I've done the research and the homework. I've talked to the people that were there, and then I wrote it down so that you can be sure that these things are true. Now, this morning, it looks like a misprint in your sermon notes, but it's not. We are going to cover the first three chapters of Luke, because we're going to try to teach through the whole book of Luke in three mornings. No, I'm kidding. We're not. Um, The goal is not to get through this as fast as possible, although it feels that way. What we're actually going to do is come back to these very familiar first opening passages of Luke at Christmas time, because it's the Christmas story. 
So we're going to give kind of a big picture view of these first three chapters this morning. It's going to launch us into our study of Luke. And then if you feel like, hey, I missed out on a bunch of good stuff in there, because we will, we're going to come back at Christmas and we're going to look more in depth at these opening passages in Luke. The cool thing about our series in Luke is it's actually going to bring us to Easter at Easter. How cool is that? So we get Christmas Luke at Christmas, we get Easter Luke at Easter, and we get everything in between before and after. So in the, in the spirit of telling stories out of order, we'll talk about Christmas at Christmas time. This morning we're going to get the 30,000 foot view of the first three chapters of Luke. And here's what I want to do this morning, because I could just read them, and that would be our time. <laughs> what I want to do is I want to look at these three chapters through two separate lenses. I want to look at this morning the, the God lens, the big picture in the sovereign plan of God, what is unfolding through these first three chapters. That's the 30,000 foot view, the big picture. But then I want to come back and I want to look at it from the human lens. What does this look like for the people who are involved that don't see the big picture, that are only seeing a sliver of the sovereign plan of God? What does the 30,000-foot view look like from five or six feet where we are? So we're going to look at this passage through both lenses this morning, and the hope is that gives us kind of a running start into our series in Luke. So we're going to open God's Word now. I'm just going to ask before we do that if you would pray with me. Would you do that? Lord, we want to know you, we want to love you, and we're so grateful for your word that teaches us about you, that tells us what you're like. Lord, I pray that through your spirit this morning, you would help us to understand what's here. Would you please change us in the study of your word and hearing from you this morning? Would you begin to do a transforming work in our lives that we wouldn't just hear this? and no more stuff, but that we would be changed by what we hear. We pray this in your name. Amen. If you have your Bible this morning, turn with me to Luke chapter 1. That's where we're going to start. If you don't have a Bible this morning, we have some here for you, and you're welcome to use them. You'll find them on the seats around you, or you can just listen. That's fine, because we're going to be moving really quickly this morning. If you're using our Bible, we're going to be on page 855 toward the back of your Bibles where you'll find it, 855 of the New Testament, and you're welcome to take that home with you as our gift to you. If you'd like to have that copy of God's Word, we'd love for you to have it. My plan this morning is to go in order as much as possible through Luke's Gospel, and we're going to start by looking through the God lens the big picture lens, because honestly, that's the most important one. What is it that God is doing in his sovereign plan as Luke records it in his gospel? So starting in chapter one, one of the first things that we're going to see here is that God is initiating the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy in the birth of John the Baptist. That's what he begins the book with. Now, I love the way Pastor Robert, our senior pastor, put it. Um, He said, after 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament, God and man are back on speaking terms as God shows up in Luke's gospel account. And what we see is Zechariah, a priest, is chosen to go in and offer incense at the temple. And while he's in there, verse 11 happens. So if you've got your Bible, you can read along. 
verse 11 of chapter 1, it says, And there appeared to him, that's Zechariah, an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. The first thing we see is that Zechariah is chosen to play a role in God's sovereign plan of redemption. God tells Zechariah, I'm going to use your son to prepare the way for my son. That's a cool assignment. That's a proud dad moment. That's not exactly how Zechariah responds at first. Verse 18, he says, And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is not young. (laughs) And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and bring this bring you this good news, and behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. I totally get Zechariah's response. I think most of us do, which is, (laughs) that can't happen. I'm super old, and also my wife is. And we don't have any kids. My wife is barren. She can't have kids. And I love Gabriel's response. He's like, hey, I'm Gabriel. I hang out with God. And God told me what to tell you, and I'm telling you, and it's going to happen. Whether you believe it or not, it's going to happen. And I'm going to give you a sign so that you know it's going to happen. Now, sovereign plan of God. We're looking at the 30,000-foot view. Skip ahead with me to verse 26. The plan of God continues. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel, same guy, was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. We see Zechariah chosen to play a role in the sovereign plan of God, and then we see Mary chosen to play a role in the sovereign plan plan of God. Mary, you're going to be the mother of Jesus. And Gabriel tells her, you are going to become pregnant by the Spirit of God with the Son of God. The Son you carry and the Son that you raise will be the King of an everlasting 
kingdom. That's what verse 33 says. He'll reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. You are going to have a son who will have an eternal kingdom. That sounds impossible. And her response is actually not doubt, but it's how. How is that possible? And Gabriel says, you think that's crazy. Your relative Elizabeth, who was barren and is old, is also pregnant. That's the cool thing about the plan of God, is that the plan of God can include the impossible because Gabriel says, for me on the next page, verse 37, nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing will be impossible with him. It's worth noting in all of this, you're going to see it more as we go through this, as Len reminded us last week as we were kind of previewing this series in Luke, the role of the Holy Spirit in the sovereign plan of God. We tend to think we're looking at the Gospel of Luke, we're going to talk about Jesus. But we're talking about the Trinity, the plan of God through His Son, through the power of the Holy Spirit. So we see in verse 15, John the Baptist will be filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. He will have the filling of the Holy Spirit. Then we see Elizabeth filled with the Holy Spirit in verse 41. When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaims this blessing, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Then we see Zechariah filled with the Holy Spirit later in chapter 1. And through the Holy Spirit, he accurately portrays the ministry of John the Baptist and Jesus, which is pretty significant, because I don't think anyone really has a concept of what God is doing here. But skip ahead with me to verse 67. We won't read the whole prophecy here, but it says, And his father, that's John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Then his proud dad moment, verse 76, he says, And you, child, talking to John, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. And then the end of that blessing, he's talking about Jesus, verse 79, he says, You will give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. See, the Holy Spirit is active, and he gives Zechariah this picture of what God is doing. He has a sense of what's coming, and that's pretty cool. Now, chapter 2. We got through chapter 1 pretty quick. We're doing okay? Yeah, all right. Chapter 2, we see the details of Jesus' birth, which we're pretty familiar with because Linus has been repeating them to us year after year from the book of Luke. So that's helpful. You already know what's going on a little bit there. What we see is Jesus' birth-fulfilling prophecy, a lot of prophecy, way more than we have time to unpack this morning. But let me just give you an idea of what I mean when I say the birth of Jesus fulfills prophecy. 600 years before this happens, Isaiah said that Jesus would be born of a virgin. That's a bold prophecy. And he is. 
We see Micah said that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, and Luke explains the extraordinary series of events at a specific time and place that brings him to Bethlehem to be born, where he's born, just like Micah said. The prophet Hosea said that he would be called out of Egypt, and he was. Multiple prophets said that Jesus would come from Nazareth, that would be his hometown, and it was. And on and on and on we could go. The birth of Jesus, the life of Jesus, fulfilling prophecy. What does that tell us? That tells us God isn't making this up as he goes. This was the plan. The whole time, from the garden, from the moment we were broken from God because of our sin, God has enacted this plan, and he knew that it was coming, and he's been orchestrating all of history to bring it together right now in this place. God's rescue plan is unfolding, and that's what Luke is recording. All along the way, as God's sovereign plan is being enacted, we see it fulfilling prophecy, and we see it fulfilling God's promises, and we also see it fulfilling people's hope. Zechariah's prophecy proclaims that. God has sent us a redeemer. But look at Simeon, chapter 2, verse 25. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. There's the Holy Spirit again. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, just like you promised. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Simeon, in this moment of joy where God has fulfilled a personal promise to him, you will not die before you see the Savior. And he has this moment of praising God. And in his praise of God, he actually identifies a major theme of God's plan and a major theme of Luke's gospel. That is, Jesus is a savior for everyone, not just for the Jews, not just for Israel, for everybody. He says a light to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, everybody. Now, skip ahead to chapter 3. Chapter 3 begins very much the way chapter 2 does, which we didn't read, and you'll see why in a minute. Let me just read the beginning of chapter 3 to you, if I can. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, I think, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, You know all them, right? Okay. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, we know what Luke is doing because he told us from the beginning, I'm trying to write an orderly account of what happened and when it happened and who it happened to, so that you can know that all the things you've heard about Jesus are true. 
why does he put all this information in there for us? What is this? What does this do for those who are reading it? He's recording the specific time and place and people involved. This is like verifiable evidence. That's what it is. At this specific time, in this specific place, God's plan unfolds. And the word of God comes to John, and John begins his ministry, and his ministry will lead to the ministry of Jesus. And Jesus' ministry will lead to your redemption. That's why it's all in here. It begins with John the Baptist, and it begins with this quote from Isaiah chapter 40 that says, verse 4, you can see Luke has quoted it here. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight. And the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. What is John's message? John's message is the message he was told he was going to have when Isaiah wrote it down 600 years before. Get ready. Be ready for the one who will bring the mountains low and fill the valleys up and make the crooked things straight and the rough things smooth. The one that will clear the way for you to be reconciled to God. Have you ever thought of that? Those images? Who can bring down a mountain? Who can fill up a valley? Who can make something that's crooked straight? That's impossible. Well, more accurately... Because Gabriel told us nothing's impossible with God. It's not that God's going to do the impossible. It's that God's going to do the unimaginable. Nothing's impossible for him. He's going to remove the obstacles. In fact, he's going to remove sin. And he's going to remove death. And he's going to offer eternity with himself to his people. Verse 6 of that prophecy says, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. There's that theme again. A Savior for everyone. Now, what you choose to do with him is up to you. But we know from Scripture that everyone will acknowledge him as Lord. Some point or another, everyone will acknowledge Jesus as Lord. Because every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. John is very effective in his ministry. So effective, it brings some confusion. Look with me at verse 15 of chapter 3. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John is so effective at proclaiming the coming kingdom of God and the Messiah. He's so effective at pointing to God's sovereign plan, which is unfolding right before them. The people start to ask, is this the guy? Maybe John is the Messiah. And John says, not even close. You're not even close, even though John is the greatest of all men born of women, Jesus said. 
John's like, you're not even close. I have no place to stand before the Messiah. I, I cannot offer myself in the, in the most humble of positions. I can't untie his shoes. I'm baptizing you with water. He's going to baptize you with the Spirit of God. We're not even in the same category. If you think it's me, you're not close, but you are close if you think it's now because he's coming soon. So get ready because God's sovereign plan of redemption is unfolding right in front of you. And he says, God's going to gather the wheat into the barn, but he's going to burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. And if that imagery is lost on you, you want to be wheat. You want to be gathered into the barn, okay? Which is why I think verse 18 is so strange. So with, after he says that, so with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. Unquenchable fire doesn't sound like good news, does it? What is the picture? Salvation, the wheat in the barn, and judgment, the chaff in unquenchable fire. So what's the good news? It's not all chaff. The good news is you get a savior. There's a way out. God has made a way for you to be with him. The sovereign plan of God means you get Jesus. That's the good news. Now nobody fully gets it. Nobody understands what's going on here outside of God himself. I don't know that anybody has an idea that God has sent his son into the world as the sacrificial lamb, as the one who will be offered up in our place to give his life to pay for our sin. I don't know if anyone sees that coming, but that's the good news. God is doing the unimaginable in reconciling people back to himself because we can't get to him on our own. And many of us, maybe most of us, understand that in the arrival of Jesus in these first few chapters of Luke and his early ministry, God is doing something really significant. We get that. We know how the story ends because we know how the book of Luke ends. We know what happens after Jesus is here because we know what happens in the book of Acts, the acts of the Holy Spirit through his apostles. We actually know how the whole book ends. We have the book of Revelation. We know how the story ends. God wins. Spoiler, right? We know the whole story, but what happens when you're in the story and you can't see the whole plan? What if you only see a sliver of the sovereign plan of God? What does that feel like? So look at this now through the human lens with me for a minute. Just think about it. Consider what it's like when you don't know the end of the book, when you can't read ahead, and when it's happening in your life, not in their life. These are people that have all been identified as devoted followers of God. They're described as righteous people. Most of them for their whole lives, and some of them have lived a long time. And as God's sovereign plan unfolds, it intersects with their lives in sometimes really wonderful ways and sometimes really difficult ways. So think for a minute about Zachariah and Elizabeth. Just think about their story. In their story, God fulfills this long-awaited hope, a hope that they probably gave up on a long time ago. 
the dream of having children. Some of you know this struggle. Some of you have walked through it. Some of you are walking through it. To wait and wait and pray and pray and eventually to just give up. And for Zachariah and Elizabeth, God's sovereign plan meant that they had to wait and wait and pray and pray and trust and eventually just surrender that dream to the Lord and say, I'm not going to get that dream. And then God blesses them with not only what they asked for, but something beyond what they asked for. God's plan not only moves his kingdom forward and gives them a significant piece of the redemptive story that he's telling, but he also meets them in one of their most desperate desires and hurts in a seemingly impossible way. And their response is very human. It's like, nuh-uh. <laughs> Which is how we would respond. But then it's obedience. And Zechariah writes, because he can't talk, his name is John, not Zechariah, not a family name. His name is John. And then they have joy and they praise God because he's given them their desire along the way of fulfilling his kingdom purpose. Think about Mary. Gabriel shows up to Mary and says, God has favor on you, Mary. But he shows his favor in a really weird way, in a really difficult way. You're going to be the mother of Jesus. Cool. You're also going to be an unwed, pregnant teen mom in a culture that would have zero tolerance for that kind of thing. Your righteous life, your devotion to the Lord up to this point is going to be called into question by everybody. You're going to be the subject of whispers and rumors. You're going to have a very uncomfortable conversation with your mom and dad. I'm pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Right. (laughs) And you're engaged to a righteous man who will probably leave you. And rightly, in his estimation, unless God shows up and tells him the story, which he does. And her response is not doubt. It is a question, which I think is really warranted if you're 15 or 16 years old and an angel says, you're going to become pregnant by the Spirit of God. What does that look like? How is that going to happen? That's terrifying. And then her response is complete submission to the sovereign plan of God. And she writes this amazing, amazing song that Luke records that expresses her faith and her praise of God and maturity that I think is well beyond most of us. Think about Mary and Joseph, also in the first three chapters of Luke, Jesus grows up. When Jesus is 12 years old, they all go to Jerusalem together, and they lose him. They misplace Jesus. For three days, they cannot find him. Can you imagine what those conversations are like for three days? You had one job Don't misplace the Son of God. And when they find him, they are frantic. Luke says, how does he put it? Great distress, that's what he says. And they're like, Jesus, what? Where have you been? And he's like, didn't you know I would be in my father's house? 
And Luke says they have no idea what he's talking about. They're like, would you please come home with us? And he said, and he does. He submits to his parents. He's like, they don't get who he is. They don't understand they're raising the Son of God. What is that like? How many moments like that do we not know about? Think about the shepherds who, for some reason, are just invited into the sovereign plan of God as the messengers of his Savior to the world. Think about what that would be like. Why would God even include them in that? Can you imagine? Their response is shock, like wet your pants terror. And then they respond to that, and they go and see what God is doing, and then they just marvel. And do you think there's any other story they tell for the rest of their life than that story? Everybody knows what God is doing because they saw it and they tell everybody. A couple more. Think about Simeon. For him, the sovereign plan of God includes a promise, a promise that you won't die until you see the Savior. He's lived his entire life devoted to God. It says he's a righteous man and he's been promised that he would get a glimpse into God's sovereign plan. And then he holds the Savior in his arms. And his response is just gratitude and praise to God for fulfilling his promise, not, to, not just to him, but to the world that God's rescue plan has begun. Consider John the Baptist. We don't think about this part very much, the human side of John's ministry. He's called to this prophetic ministry that means a very humble existence. By definition, his job is to point to someone else. It's just to point to Jesus. That's his ministry. And here's what God promises him. John, you're going to have a very significant ministry. It's really critical to my plan. You have the incredible privilege of being the forerunner of the Messiah, the Savior of the world. You have the incredible privilege of living in the wilderness, John. You have the incredible privilege of eating bugs to live. And then you're going to be thrown into prison. And then they're going to cut off your head. And John's response is passionate obedience and a life of faithful ministry because God asked him to. So much so that while he's in prison, he sends some of his buddies to Jesus and says, are you the guy? I hope you're the guy. This is not going well for me. I hope you're the guy. And Jesus says, yeah, I'm the guy. And you're going to die now. He quotes scripture back to him and leaves out the part of scripture that talks about captives being freed. He just eliminates that part. It's like, John, you're going to die. But yeah, I'm the one. Faithful ministry. In the lives of these people, in their stories, we get to see the sovereign plan of God. And we get to see the 30,000 foot view, the big picture. And so we look at the story and we see, can't you see what God is doing? It makes total sense in retrospect. (laughs) Can't you see what God is doing? It makes complete sense to us in hindsight. And we get frustrated when we read scripture and we think, how are these people so faithless? Why don't they just obey? Don't they see what God is asking them to do? Of course, it's the best thing. Of course, it's 
the right thing? Why don't they trust him more? And I don't think we give enough credit to them. Because when you think of it from their perspective, when you can only see a sliver of the sovereign plan of God, you can only see what's in front of you, and what's in front of you is really hard. How do you respond? How do you respond? And I'm saying that to myself as much as I'm saying it to you. How do we respond when God asks you to wait? When God says wait and wait or asks you to give up a dream like Zachariah and Elizabeth. When God asks you to do something that's impossibly hard or embarrassing or is going to cost you relationships like Mary. Or when God says, I'm going to ask for your whole life and it's going to be difficult and then you're going to die like John. Do you still trust God? Do you obey him? Do you sing his praises? See, the sovereign plan of God means we get Jesus and that's enough. It just so happens along the way that God happens to pour out a lot of great things on us. The point is, we get Jesus, and that's enough. And that's the question. I'm going to invite the worship team up now. That's the question I have for you this morning, because it's the question I think God is asking me. If all I give is Jesus, is it enough for you? Is that enough for you? And as you look at those response cards, or you think about what prayer requests you have, or you think about what's going on in your life, that's the question I would ask you this morning. Is it enough? If all I have is Christ, is that enough?